Welcome to Terrible, the podcast where two friends discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare themselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast. Marie, on the other hand, has recently delved into all that is true crime. We both believe that once you watch or listen to your first true crime case, there's no going back. So let's do this. Just before we get started, we wanted to mention that we do have a merch store. There's lots of great stuff, so if you guys want to check it out and support the show, you can go on Etsy and look us up at Terrible True Crime. Last thing is it really helps when you rate the show and leave us a review or a comment wherever you listen. So if you can do that, that would be very appreciated. Thanks, everyone. If you follow us on social media, you've seen the amazing art we posted done by Tanya Skandalis. She's an amazing Canadian artist that does custom digital art. It's really cool, so please go check out her Etsy shop at Tanya Studio Co. She has some art for sale and you can also message her for any custom pieces. If you want 10% off, you can use code TERRIBLE10. All right, let's get into some updates. So I texted you earlier this week and told you that I had a story for you. So it was, I guess, Tuesday night and my boyfriend was working a night shift and I was home alone with a dog and the cat and it's like about 9 30 p.m and i get like a ring at the front doorbell <gasps> blood pressure immediately jumps right up <laughs> oh it's like full stress so i was like but i was like you know what like amazon delivers till 10 i think so i was like maybe matt ordered something and yeah. i just don't know so i'm like well i'll go check in like 10 minutes or something but then i hear like pounding on the door and oh. i'm like okay this is weird i'm just gonna ignore it like maybe it's someone who like drank too much and is trying to like get back into their house and they're just like like we're in a row of townhomes so like it's easy to mistake the house for any of them really but then it doesn't stop like it's pounding so hard that like the building is shaking oh my god <laughs> i'm like okay i'm like true crime mode activated i'm like no this is not how this ends for me i call my boyfriend who like works like basically down the street and i'm like okay someone's knocking at the door can you get home he's like okay he's like don't worry about it just take the dog and the cat go in the bedroom lock the door and i'll on my way home i'll just check it out anyway at this point like the person is still like banging at the door and i'm like really like it makes no sense like who could this be and yeah lock myself grab the cat grab the dog lock myself in the bedroom as matt's pulling up i like peek out the window because i like i'm brave enough now to like look out the window and there's a fire truck in the front alley it was firefighters oh. Now I feel stupid because I was here thinking like I was like I said like full true crime activation mode. I was like, you're not kidnapping me today. Like there's no way I'm being a victim. And yeah, but I don't uh, blame you. I feel like they could have yelled or something, like and you would have heard like, them, I hear right? Any, like talking or yelling or anything. So and then anyway, when Matt gets home, he's like obviously like you did the right thing like you shouldn't just like go to the no. door and open it but it turns out our like next door neighbor had a co2 leak oh okay okay so they were like trying to make sure i wasn't dead in here yeah not trying to kill me oh my god <laughs> like the complete opposite to what you thought they were gonna do yeah and, and like i obviously let them in they all walk in and i'm like sorry sorry <laughs> took me like 10 minutes to open the door like sorry i listened to way too much true crime to open the door for a, like a greeting like that like there was 
was no way. There was well, yeah, no, that's that's a little aggressive. And this is also why we need ring doorbell cameras or any sort of camera because you could have easily just gone on your phone and checked and been like, oh, I know. okay, like I know. maybe the house guys, is on fire. We don't have them. <laughs> I know. Oh my god. Okay, we have to well, gift them to each other for our birthdays this year. That's uh, such a good idea. Well, at least oh, you're yeah. alive and well. You, you I know. know you're still I here with so us. Stupid. <laughs> but no, but whatever. see, the thing is, is if it happened again tomorrow, I really hope you would act the exact same way because yeah. Like, I probably would there's no way i'm opening that door no no never do you have a peephole like a yeah but like there's a set of stairs to go all the way down to the door so like you don't have like any space and there's a little window so oh. if you go down the stairs the person can fully see that you're home right so yeah yeah there was no way there was okay. absolutely no way i was in full survival mode <laughs> i don't blame you like writing out my will <laughs> Anyway, our neighbors, I think, had to stay somewhere else for the night, but we were all clear. And other than that, really, we took Ollie to the mountains for the first time. So we spent the day in Canmore, and he did so good. He met so many other dogs. Did he love it? Oh, yeah, he, like, loved it. Like, everyone always has dogs, I feel like, in the mountains, like, in Canmore and Bath and, like, Mm -hmm. anywhere like that. And all the dogs, like, greet each other, and everyone's there petting dogs, and he just got, like, so much love. (laughs) And he he has, like, the fanciest harness and leash. He is made for the mountains. He's yes, so exactly. Cute. He's a little mountain boy, but he was really good. And yeah, we went for a really long walk, and then we sat down to have a beer at a bar and on a patio, obviously. And he mm-hmm. just laid there with us, like happy as can be. Just took a little nap, but he was really perfect. Oh, that's so fun! Good for Ollie getting out there. Anyway, I know you haven't had the easiest week, so <laughs> we haven't talked much, but how have yeah. you been? So it's kind of funny because I was editing a last week's episode and part of last week's episode, Renee had mentioned, it was kind of part of the case, but mentioned that if someone has really bad strep throat, they may not be able to call in sick because, you know, they're so sick in bed or whatever. And I'm listening to this editing while I now have strep throat. (laughs) So I just laughed so hard because I'm like, what's the coincidence (laughs) of this? I haven't been sick for like over two years. I got really bad strep throat. I had to take off work for a couple of days. I'm all better now, but it was just so funny. The coincidence of like, we you put it into it. the universe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because oh. just a couple of days after that, that's when I started feeling kind of sick. So I just thought that was really funny. I've just literally been watching that uh, documentary you said to watch on Netflix. Um, Catching a Killer. I Catching think it's a called. Killer. Yeah. yeah. So I watched that. It was really, really good. Good. Eh? And then, yeah. And then I also watched uh, Worst Roommates or something that's called like that. Okay. Um, it's Is true it crime. No, it's on, it's on Netflix. It's true crime. And it's basically, it's kind of like the same thing as the catching a killer in the sense that like every episode is a different case, but it's pretty much just about someone getting a random roommate and it turning like very wrong. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, I've been very thankful in my life to never have a roommate, but definitely after watching that, I never would want to, Um, but it was really good. So I would recommend you watch that if you want to. So, you know, I've just been binging all these Netflix. Netflix documentaries and they've actually been pretty good oh love a good Netflix yeah true crime documentary recommendation did they do any Canadian cases or was it mostly American it was mostly American and I learned a new term a house squatter squatter. yes I didn't know what that was and I was like oh my god people do that and they not that they can do it but they you literally can't 
you legally can't just throw someone like on actually the road. evict someone yeah yeah it it's super months. complicated mm-hmm. yeah that's why like being a landlord is probably like well that's sort the of thing, the scariest right? thing in the world yeah exactly <laughs> like, not in the world but scary <laughs> yeah because you really have to trust someone that they're gonna pay you or else you're kind of just screwed no matter what but... yeah and there's like nothing like you said like all the mm-hmm. tenants rights and stuff like yeah. it's like a whole different yeah. world it's really okay. nuts yeah apparently it was like as soon as the person gets mail sent to that address they're legally living there anyway Mm. so I thought it was kind of interesting you know you learn so much when you watch these things I know I know and that's like kind of what this we're gonna go into this case obviously that's why we're all here but the, the fun thing about this podcast is that half the things I used to just like scroll past on the news and like read a news story and be like oh that's so interesting like I wish I knew more yeah now I have like a legitimate reason to, to sit down it. and to actually look into it and to like yeah. learn and just mm-hmm. soak in all the information whereas like before I never would have spent three hours <laughs> plus writing like an outline about like a topic that I just thought was like mildly interesting yeah no that's actually so true and like somewhat actually enjoy doing it at the same time (laughs) yeah like it makes it fun yeah no exactly the other fun thing is that we're doing a merch giveaway because we've hit 300 followers on instagram (laughs) (laughs) so we're doing a giveaway so if you follow us on instagram at terrible true crime you'll see a recent post that we just posted it'll have some of our merch on it and if you follow us like the post tag a friend and share it on your story you'll be entered to win and basically we'll at random and pick a winner and message them on Instagram and they get to pick anything from our merch store and we'll order it and send it to their house. We're really excited about it so go check it out. So here are the sources for this week's case. We obviously have a Wikipedia page because Wikipedia is the bomb. An article from the Ashbury Park Press and the Home News and Tribune by Susan K. Livio. There is an article from the Canadian Children's Rights Council. Um, there is also an article from Film Daily by Aishwarya Simha. A CBC article by Katie Parsons. There's also a Medium article by JC and a MEAWW article by Priyam Chertry. And finally, an Evie Magazine article by Jessica Marie Baumgartner. So this week we're throwing it way back. Uh, which I felt like was something we much needed, like an older case that felt more far away. It's spring of 1935 in Seaforth, Nova Scotia, nearby Halifax County. Eva Nayforth is a 27-year-old woman who is very much in love with her boyfriend, a man named Walter. It's kind of presented like she might have been a little bit more into him than he was into her, which, again, I... I don't know if that's just how it looks, but that's how I read it in a couple different articles. So the reason we're talking about this couple is because Eva would soon find out that she was pregnant. She was hoping to marry Walter and raise their baby together. Walter, however, had other plans. He wanted Eva to quote-unquote get rid of the baby. Now, this could mean a lot of different things. Obviously, abortions aren't legal at the time. It's reported that Walter was more concerned with drinking and gambling, which is not cool, Walter. You impregnated someone. Get your shit together. <laughs> you could go drinking and gambling even if you have a kid. Yeah. Like you're not like, the one that's pregnant, so you can drink if you really want to. Not that it's respectful, you know, like <laughs> very true. Anyways. There are even more rumors that he might have actually already been married, which is super Ooh. not cool, Walter. But again, rumors, we don't know what is actually true or not. It's unclear if the couple had officially decided if they wanted to keep their baby or not. In the sense that Eva could have said, well, I don't care what Walter wants, I'm keeping the baby. Or if they had 
decided let's put the baby up for adoption. But nevertheless, Walter decided to put a $100 down payment towards Eva's care, which I'm assuming means like delivery, aftercare, all of that stuff. We've never had babies, so... (laughs) (laughs) Can't confirm what that would be. (laughs) The birthing, okay. (laughs) The birthing care and the post-care for mama and baby. This down payment was given to the ideal maternity home in East Chester, Nova Scotia. Eva is getting closer to her due date, and it's one week before Christmas that year. Walter drops Eva off at the ideal maternity home, and he heads back home. I don't think dads actually went into the hospital for delivery. That wasn't, like, a thing they did back then, and, like, up until maybe even our grandparents, great-grandparents' age. Really, eh? Well, when COVID first started, I remember husbands or partners couldn't go into the delivery room. If that was me, I would freak out. I would not be able to do that alone. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And it is your child too, as the father, you know what I mean? So not even like for them, not being able to be there. Yeah. I don't know where I'm getting this, but I'm 90% sure that back in the day, we'll just say dads didn't go in to the hospital. And I feel like I also might've heard this on another podcast, but imagine you're just like you're saying, like with COVID, how devastating that was for families as your first child too, Mm -hmm. like- just bye good luck in there <laughs> and it's a scary process giving oh birth God, terrifying you know you want someone there to support you yes yeah and it doesn't sound like she had any family there or anything either so like i can't imagine being totally alone and then it sounds like you know walter wasn't the most uh didn't sound like he stepped up much mm-hmm. you know yeah This maternity home was operated from the late 1920s through at least the late 1940s. It was run by a couple known as the Youngs, William and Lila Young, that is. The couple advertised themselves as a doctor and an obstetrician. The ideal maternity home promised both maternity care for local married couples and a discreet birthing and placement for children of unwed mothers. Okay, let's talk about unwed mothers. We hate it because that's a garbage term, but in Canada at the time, both abortion and birth control were illegal. So basically, any woman who was pregnant outside of being married was kind of shunned or there was like a negative image associated to that. I think religion plays a big role in that and just like societal norms at the time. But it was like a it was like a huge sin kind of thing. So yeah, yeah. exactly. But like, let's be real stuff happens. It happens. It's really not the end of the world. But I feel like the societal pressure on these women's probably made it feel like this was like the end of their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it makes a whole process more difficult, which it already is difficult to be pregnant and to give birth and for someone to, you know, make it even harder for them. That's, that's really sad. Yeah. And it just like, I think it was happening pretty much constantly around this time. After her arrival at the ideal maternity home, Eva quickly became sick. In mid to late January, she developed an abdominal infection. She would go on to have a very, very difficult and painful birth. After her baby was born, Eva's infection would persist. Eva asked William Young, the doctor, to write to her parents, informing them of her condition, and to ask them to hurry and come visit if they wish to see her. Basically, it's not looking good at this point, and what this letter is saying is like, come and say your goodbyes if you can. I think a lot more women died in childbirth, obviously, than they do now. Yeah. Right? So I don't think this was an extremely abnormal thing to have happened, but... It sounds awful. Well, also I'm thinking too, if it's in a sort of place where they, you know, recognize an unwed mother Mm -hmm. as someone who has like committed a sin, I wonder if they even don't take care of them as well as they would have if she was married. That's a very good point. I mean, 
we'll get into it, but the judgment of that, I think, plays plays a role. Yeah, in this somewhat. Some, somewhat, yeah. Eva's parents receive the message, and they contact Walter. Walter, to his credit, rushes to the maternity home. When he arrived, he was brought to see Eva. He realized that she was barely conscious, and he pleaded with William to call a doctor. Even Walter could see that something was terribly wrong. He told William that he thought Eva needed antibiotics. And, like, sounds like he was right, right? Infection, you fight that mm-hmm. with antibiotics usually. It's a bacterial infection. But I think this says a lot that even Walter, who <laughs> was kind of portrayed as, like, a drunk gambler, is like, uh, yo. Hang on. She's not okay. Like, someone needs to do something, and someone needs to do it now. But was William a doctor? William was a doctor, right? We'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> I asked too many questions, to guys. so subtle. <laughs> Okay, and Walter was asking because Eva had not even yet been given any antibiotics to help at all. And this is apparently because the maternity home didn't have any available, which, you know, it's not like this is the only medical institution close by. Like, there are hospitals and stuff that she could have been brought to or like Walter was suggesting another doctor to come in for a second opinion or something. Mm -hmm. William assured Walter that he was a doctor and that he had everything under control. Unfortunately, Walter's visit had to come to an end because of visiting hours and oh my god I would not have left I know that you like basically have to but I can't imagine like he must have had I'm I'm sure some love for Eva if not like a lot of love for her and to have to leave her there in those conditions must have been so Mm heart-wrenching but then again he must have thought like this is a medical institution these are experts they do this for a living I'll just go and hope and pray for the best and come back later as he's heading out the door the youngs hand him a bill and inform him that his son had died The bill stated that he owed $20 for a butter box and another $5 for the burial. Okay, so to give some context, a butter box was a small wooden box, kind of a grocery-style box that was used for dairy products. So this was the Young's way of, I guess, taking a deceased infant and kind of giving it some sort of casket? I don't know. And then the burial would happen. Eva continued to get worse and worse, and finally in early February, she was hemorrhaging, basically like bleeding a lot, okay? This is when Lila finally decides she needs to bring Eva to the hospital. While they're on their way, Eva dies in the Young's car. They waited until like the absolute last minute where it was like totally out of control. Yeah. And so this to me is like purely like neglect, which Mm -hmm. is, is so awful to think that this could have been prevented. Yeah. Lila then decides to turn the car around and just head back to the maternity home. Lila would then send Eva's parents a letter informing them of Eva's passing. And in the letter, they would go on and on about how ill Eva was and how she died due to her own physical condition. They, of course, don't forget to mention how amazing of a job they did caring for her. So they're letting her parents know, but they're also kind of absolving themselves from any wrongdoing in the situation, which is not the time and place, dude. Like... (laughs) No, seriously, like send your condolences and if they have questions, they have questions, but you don't have to try to make yourself look better for it. No. Because either way, you have nothing to look good for. You didn't help her at all. And there are like, Walter's a witness, like, etc. Like, it's just, it, it's very obvious in this particular case. Ugh, this next part breaks my heart, but Eva was buried in the back of an Anglican cemetery with her son. She was separated from the rest of her family that had passed because she was unclean or unholy or whatever because she was a quote-unquote unwed mother that's awful i have no words she was a human being who cares 
if she was pregnant and had a baby. Like, it's actually, it should be the opposite. It should be celebrated. And it shouldn't be a reason as to why she would be, like, cut out of the family plot mm-hmm. or separated from all her family. But I'm, I am glad in the sense that she was buried with her baby boy. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say, too. That's At least there's that. Imagine if they took the baby and, like, buried the baby where everyone else is. That would have been so bad. Oh, that would have been awful. In 1936, after Eva's death, Lila and William were charged with two counts of manslaughter. Thank you. <laughs> there was an autopsy done on Eva and her baby boy for the trial, assuming this was before they were buried. The autopsy showed that Eva had an infection called peristonitis. <laughs> Thank you. Peristonitis. <laughs> That's my assumption anyways. <laughs> it was speculated that this probably came from unclean instruments used at the ideal maternity home. The Youngs denied this, obviously, and in May of 1936, they were acquitted. And yes, they just picked up and went right back to work. How could you be accused of something like this and like no action is taken? I think it's blurry when it's medical. I don't know. I feel like that's what like casts doubt around it is like they have a pretty good reputation. Like they're a well-known maternity home. Yeah. They're, you know, doctors or obstetricians or whatever. And they're saying that they did the best that they could. I wonder if they would... I don't know what the correct term for this would be, but if they would send someone to inspect or like do an audit of how they sanitize or or anything like that. Yes. Yeah, we'll get into it. Renee hates me for my question. <laughs> no, no, I think it's good. It's good. It's just like if I if I mention it too early, it's gonna yeah. screw up the entire time. I got you, I got it, I got it. <laughs> Okay, so let's dig deeper into the maternity home. So this home, like I said, was operated from the late 1920s through at least the late 1940s. Lila Young was a graduate of the National School of Obstetrics and Midwifery. She was a midwife, but advertised as an obstetrician. William, her husband, was a chiropractor, but advertised himself, I believe, as like a general medicine doctor. Right. Like, I think you're technically a doctor, but you're bones doc. Like, you're, you're yes, a chiropractor. Yes. You're not exactly. A, yeah. Yeah. Like, it's it's different, right? Like, yeah. just because you're a doctor and a chiropractor does not mean that you can deliver babies. No. Absolutely not. This kind of clears it up for us. So neither of them are what they're presenting to be, right? Like Lila is a midwife, not an obstetrician, and William's a chiropractor, not a medical doctor. He was also unordained Seventh-day Adventist minister and a missionary. It's just like an extra tidbit of information I found. It doesn't really... Well, it kind of... It surprises me when people do horrible stuff. And they're very religious. When they started well, the maternity, I'm so yeah. sorry, Renee. It's like in our previous case, he wants to be a say, preacher, you know. Yeah, like you haven't listened week? to last week's case. So oof, oh my god, go listen. Yeah, a religious man gone so wrong. Yes. When they started the maternity home, the building consisted of just a small cottage. Within 15 years, it grew much larger. They eventually had 54 bedrooms and could hold as many as 70 babies in the nursery. I feel like that's a lot. Oh yeah, like this is a huge operation. And like staff is a big question mark that I have. Like we talk a lot about the youngs, but I wonder a lot about different staff that they had and if they turned a blind eye to a lot that was going on here. Well, especially if they're the two running the show and they're not even what they say they are in terms of qualification. So that's kind of really scary. By 1933, the Youngs had a pretty big reputation in and around Nova Scotia. This would cause the Nova Scotia Child Welfare Director and the Health Minister to take notice of them and ask them or force them pretty much to hire a registered nurse. Which like, yeah, (laughs) like... (laughs) 
I can't believe there wasn't a registered nurse that was working there before. Like, oh. considering how many babies and, they had. Yeah. yeah. However, it doesn't seem like this made much of a difference about the conditions at the home. Unfortunately, the very clear medical neglect that Eva suffered would not be the only crime committed at the ideal maternity home. The Youngs were involved in what is referred to as the illegal trade of babies between Canada and the U.S., during this period, it was illegal to adopt across religious backgrounds. Basically, this is very dumb, but basically what this means is that if you are Jewish, that you're only allowed to adopt a Jewish baby. Huh. Or if you're Christian, you want to adopt like a Christian baby or like etc. Right. So because of that, if you wanted to adopt, like if you're from the U.S., you'd have to try to go to Canada to find like a baby. Well, I think it just means that it's very limited for certain like Judaism was a big one because there were a lot of families that were having a hard time conceiving is what I assume and that wanted to adopt but didn't have the ability to do that in the states that they were living in. New Jersey and New York, I think, are kind of the main ones that are referred to in this in this case because there was a lack of Jewish babies. Wow, I didn't know that was illegal. I'm not sure if this was illegal in Canada, but it, it was legal in the U.S., which caused a lot of families mm-hmm. to scoot on over to Nova Scotia and basically buy like a black market baby so lila and william obviously saw this as a a good business opportunity for them they took advantage of women in difficult situations and young couples really wanting a family i hate those two topics together yes correlated like it's it's like desperations on both ends right like families desperate to adopt children Mm -hmm. and then women like desperate and just like oppressed and just in like terrible situations yeah looking for help or anything and these couple is offering them the perfect solution and like support quote unquote and all the stuff that they're needing but really they're just in the middle of all this taking advantage of everyone it's like truly awful so the youngs would actually present many of their babies as like whatever religious background would fit the family looking for a baby. So like I just said, if a Jewish couple was coming down from just say New Jersey, because that's a state mentioned a lot, to Nova Scotia, and they'd be like, look at the babies, which one do you like? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just picturing this in my head. And they're like, that one. And like, perfect, that one's Jewish. Oh, like, they it- didn't even actually try. No. Oh. Like it was all about selling for them. Uh-huh. They would sell these babies for up to $10,000 back then. $10,000 and they didn't even provide the religious background. <laughs> yeah, like it's all like, just like basically it's all BS to make money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, like, I think we both agree, like, the religious background shouldn't matter, but it mattered for these families back <laughs> no, exactly. then, right? Like, yeah. yeah. They would also charge mothers who gave birth at the home up to $500 for their services. A lot of these women, like I said, were alone, maybe deserted by their families or their partners that weren't planning on having children with them and would have to go to the home, again, in desperate circumstances to give birth and then were charged $500 at the time, which is so much money for a woman to have to pay and to undergo that type of trauma yeah that's ridiculous the following is a quote from the canadian children's rights council article at this time the average wage in this area was eight dollars a week many of the mothers could not afford this sum and were forced to work at the home for up to 18 months to pay their bill so not only were these mothers forced pretty much by societal pressure to give up their babies they now have to stay and work in the environment 
where they gave birth and have to watch other young mothers go through the same things which is just like the word traumatizing doesn't even begin to describe i just feel like this would be the most awful experience and especially if they're getting like the youngs are getting ten thousand dollars for the baby just put five hundred like pay for her uh yeah no her stay like you know what i mean like yeah Nope, ridiculous you for care and they made money off the baby i doubt the women obviously saw like a cent of the money that they mm-hmm. made for the baby because it, it was so seen as like a problem to get rid of right and it was just like get rid of it and like fix it for me yeah. and that's not these women's fault that's totally societal pressure mm-hmm. and like bs it would later come out that some of the babies born in the ideal maternity home were deemed as unmarketable or unfavorable by the youngs. So this would mean that the couple assumed that they wouldn't be able to make enough money off the child. And to solve this problem, they starved these babies to death. Yeah, these wow. people are garbage. That's messed up. That's full hatred. They did this by feeding them only molasses and water. Ah. Yeah. And it's reported that babies would only last about two weeks on this diet. Which is just also just weird because if you're like so sinister and evil that you're just gonna like kill, you're gonna murder these babies because that's what this is. Like, this is torture. Like why feed them this? Yeah, oh, like it's like it's, a slow death and they're mm-hmm. like, oops, baby died. No, no it's even worse. It's even worse yes, than like. Than other options. Know, yeah. They don't even want to think of. No, just... exactly. No, but this is absolute torture. It's, yeah, it's awful. And like molasses really like that's disgusting (laughs) it's gross it's gross it's just i mean we cover a lot of terrible stuff obviously on this podcast but this and to to double up as someone who cares for women and babies but then to also turn around and do this like it makes no sense it's all money and greed and i mean we can guess what unmarketable meant dark skin darker skin than you know the average perfect white baby probably in their eyes um, any visible disabilities and illness. It was a big one too. If the baby looked like it was sick. And most of the illness was caused by the youngs in the first place because of the unsanitary conditions in the home. So babies didn't have a good chance of survival here. And again, babies who died were put in butter boxes, dairy boxes, like I mentioned. And that's why this case is often referred to as the butter box babies. These babies were buried on the property and sometimes even burned in the homes furnished with i'm hoping this means cremated but i i have no idea because a cremator is different than just a fire and okay la la i don't even want to think about it but you don't just make up a crematorium like crematorium is is a thing that needs to be to burn the whole body they clearly didn't care enough to actually properly dispose of bodies and they clearly didn't even care enough to probably invest in an actual oh no cremate whatever it's called cremation I don't know. know. Yeah. But you know what I mean? In my head, I see it like they ran out of space and then they started attempting to do something else, which is Mm -hmm. awful, but that's just what I'm like speculating. But some couples who gave birth at the home were actually told that their babies had died. But the truth was that their babies were stolen by the youngs and sold in more illegal adoptions. Could you imagine? Wow. Yep. They just fully dove into this. Yeah. They didn't even think twice, really. They're just like, this is how we're going to make all of our money. Let's There's like be no as ruthless. No, yeah. let's be as ruthless as we can be. And the weird thing, too, I find when all these couples do stuff together or like best friends do stuff together or whatever, when people find each other, like, how did you find the one person that was just as messed up as you are that was willing uh-huh. to do this? 
Yeah. And also, this is where my question comes back from the top. Like, the nurse that was hired, the other workers, were the other workers just women who had given birth there, so they just wanted to work and pay off their dues and then get out of there? Or were there legitimate employees that knew what was going on? I have no idea. It's estimated that between four and 600 babies died at the home. Bet you weren't expecting that. That's a lot of babies. Around another thousand survived and were adopted. As I'm sure you can imagine, for the lack of care this couple had for their babies, some of the surviving babies were very ill because of the unsanitary conditions and the neglect that was, you know, going on at the home. This next part is another quote from the article from the Canadian Children's Rights Council. Eventually, child welfare authorities in Canada and America were so concerned with what the Youngs had done, they developed new laws to protect adopted children. By 1934, many people started taking an interest in the ideal maternity home. The Nova Scotia Department of Public Welfare gathered evidence against the Youngs, but was unable to shut down their business. After many charges and unsuccessful investigations, in 1946, Montreal newspaper ran an article exposing the couple's maternity home as the ruthless mercenary operation that it was. The couple tried to sue the local newspaper for defamation, but their case was dismissed and so the ideal maternity home was shut down. In 1936, after Eva's trial, the RCMP began to investigate the home. In 1936, after Eva's trial, the RCMP began to investigate the home. They followed with charges of fraud. They also found out that the home had been operating for 17 years without a license. In 1940, they applied for a license but were refused. In 1945, the home was finally closed. Saya Steinhauer is one of the survivors, and she's the one questioned in the following article by Susan K. Livio. Although horrified by the truth, the adoptees say knowing their origins helps them appreciate their adoption in a way they never imagined. Saya said she feels inextricably tied to other survivors of the maternity home, many of whom were adopted in the summer of 1945. We feel related. It's somebody who has lived your whole story. They also realize they are adoptive parents may have saved their lives, bringing new meaning to the words they were told as children. You were chosen. Saya was also fortunate that her mother was drawn to a wet and sickly looking child in a corner of the room. A pediatrician in town who examined Saya urged her mother to get the child out of there as quickly as possible, Saya said. I realize I could have been bound for a butter box, Saya said, and I'm here to tell the story. Oh my god. I know, right? Wow. Like, this is, I, when I read this, I was like, oh, this has to be just, like, directly inserted into into our case because we're seeing the whole other side, but even the, like, surviving children, this has had, like, a, such an effect on them, right? Mm. And, of course, like, as a baby, you can't necessarily remember, like, picture your memories as a baby, mm. but as an adult, kind of understanding what you would have gone through at that time, but knowing that you actually lived it and not yeah. are, are not just hearing this case of other people's going through it, I'm sure is just so overwhelming for them. And I just wanted to add another survivor story. This is from the article mentioned above by Jessica Marie Baumgartner. Another survivor, Sandy Tuckerton, said her mother chose her because she was the only baby in the ward that day with dark hair like her own. A pediatrician diagnosed Sandy with a pneumonia. If I had stayed there, I probably wouldn't have made it. The sick babies weren't marketable. I feel very lucky that I was adopted. I have full body goosebumps. I love when you 
read things back to me even though I put them there because sometimes my whole body just like ugh, it's like, just like crazy to think and the parents that did choose to adopt those babies maybe I'm not even sure if they knew they were sick or yeah or, or, or just what like really but, wanting a child yeah yeah and actually taking care of them and nourishing them back to health wow this case is just like a really dark piece of Canadian history I felt it was important to cover, but like I said, it was also kind of a change from what we usually talk about or have gone into in the past episodes. So yeah, how do you feel? This makes me really sad. I think it's important to bring these types of cases to light just because like I've never heard of anything like this. And you know, in my mind, I never would have thought that this was an actual thing that people would do, but it just kind of makes you think twice to really appreciate your life and treat everyone the way they should be treated. You know, you don't have to pick profit over you know being a decent human being exactly and there i mean there was some positive outcomes to this like i said i mentioned really quickly earlier but a lot of laws around adoption were changed and you know i didn't really go into that because this this episode would be hours long and then you know now women have access to birth control and the right to abortion and i think that you know i'm not going to go on a a pro-choice rant but i think that having that has saved a lot of women from putting themselves in extremely risky and very dangerous situations and i think us as women are very grateful for that yep couldn't have said it better myself this week we will be donating to canadian foster families association This is from their website. The CFFA is a registered charity and was established with a mandate to speak as a collective voice for foster families throughout the country. Our primary goal is to enhance the quality of care provided to children and youth in care across Canada. To accomplish this, the CFFA has representation from the provinces and territories and work with the provincial and territorial organizations. If you would like to contribute to the Canadian Foster Families Association, the link to donate will be in our description and Instagram slash TikTok bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us. And see you next time.